Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 11. Uh, we are, this is a big chapter, and I'm really glad we got done with Hannah's uh, prayer at the beginning of the chapter. Um, the end of the chapter is going to have like a glimpse of the priesthood from uh, the prophetic plan of the whole priesthood is laid out in this chapter, which is fulfilled throughout all of human history. So it's a huge chapter when it comes to like what we need get to cover in this chapter. Um, but it will pick up in verse 11. I'm just going to read a big chunk here. And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, Elkanah being the husband of Hannah. I'm not... I, Keep saying Ruth instead of Hannah. Sorry about that. This is Hannah we're talking about. So Elkanah goes back to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest, that child being Samuel. And now the sons of Eli were corrupt. So we get a transition in the story. Uh, the corrupt there is actually translated sons of Belial. Um, so they're that corrupt. Um, they're enemies of God. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand uh, while the meat was boiling. And then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat... The priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest. He will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat before fat first, then you can take as much as your heart desires. But he would answer him and say, No, but you have to give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. I'll beat you up. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Of course they abhorred it. They're getting ripped off. And so this is happening right away, right? So we get this idea of how far Israel has fallen. Um, there's a contrast being drawn in the chapter. I want to point it out early. In verse 11, we have Elkanah and Ramah going back to his house. And the sons were corrupt in verse 12. And then there's a, a, in verse 18, we see a contrast between Eli's sons and this Samuel, who is kind of his stepson, because Eli's raising him. So you got these two kids that are corrupt, and you got Samuel that gets raised good, implying that Eli is, he's a lot, at least not a total failure as a dad, because he seems to raise Samuel okay. In verse 12, it says, they did not know the Lord. So if knowing God's a personal thing, this is a great example, a great passage for that, because Eli knows the Lord. He knows what he should be doing. He fails in it with his kids. But the fact that they didn't know, you can be a high priest in the temple at Shiloh and not know the Lord. And I just think that that's an interesting kind of idea. It doesn't matter who raises you. What matters is where your heart is at. So it's not about what religion you claim. It's about who you are, right? So Eli, being a priest, clearly doesn't pass on his faith through genetics. The priest custom, in the Hebrew, that means a rite. So when they created a custom, they're creating a rite that the priests can have. And, and 
they'd routinized this disobedience to the law so deeply that this was just how things were at the temple. And we get this glimpse of the temple, which their thievery is very complex, and because it consistently happens, they stop calling it thievery. But it's the same thing that Jesus got angry about when he was tossing money changers out of the temple. The worship of God is not a money-making enterprise. It never should be. And the priests of God aren't there to just take for themselves. Even though in that role it's possible to do that, it's called corruption. And it's a presumption that because I'm teaching the word or I'm a great theologian or philosopher that I can take advantage of the people around me. And it's a temptation that leaders have that in this case God sees everything that's going on and you got Samuel who's watching it happen as he grows up, which is where we get this documentation from. Like this is what Samuel saw every time the temple was moving. It's unhealthy here in that, uh, so there's an unhealthy aspect to this whole thing. If you're going to, well, first of all, let's get into what actually happens. The three-pronged fork, I think, is where we get images of demons with pitchforks, right? This is what they're doing. They're using this tool in a very son of Belial kind of way where they're going in, and as people come to the temple, remember, they're giving their offerings, but some of those offerings go back to the family for the feast, so when the families are feasting, and that's why we got this list in verse 14, pan, kettle, cauldron, pot, different families, different tools, doesn't matter. They're walking around the temple area, going up to everybody's camp and doing what I do in my family, which is I claim taxes as dad. So if my kids get a thing of fries, I claim a couple taxes because I'm dad, right? And so I've just done that since they were little and they, they understand it. But that doesn't mean it's not thievery. Right? It's absolutely wrong and corrupt of me to do that. This is at a whole other level because in doing it at the temple, they're causing people to hate the temple. And the temple should be a place people feel welcome. And it should be a feast. It should be awesome to be there. But this is why we have this idea that, that it's wrong to do this. So they're doing two things that are wrong here. First is the verse 14 where they're going into other people's cooking pans and stealing meat probably using the fork to pick the parts they want. Um, and then they're also saying, give meat for the roasting to the priest, and he won't take the boiled meat from you, but the raw. They're taking the raw meat. Why would you take raw meat? Because you can sell it. So they're making money off people. It's flat-out thievery. Um, or they're eating the raw meat, which would be absolutely horrendous because there's bacteria, other corruptions. They're supposed to cook it under the law. They're not supposed to eat any meat with blood in it. So if you ask the priest, they would say, we're the priests, therefore we have a right to do this. And that's the word, the priest's custom. They claimed this as a right. So in verse 15, it says the priest's servant. We don't know if that's Samuel or not, or just anyone at the temple that tried to challenge these two kids on it. Uh, and these two kids are kind of running the show. Eli's probably gotten old. Um, but stealing the meat and taking raw meat are two things that are against the law. Verse 16 says, you know, the servant tries to step in and say, well, you can take you know, if you just wait for them to cook it, you can take your portion. Like, once they give you your portion, you can have it. Um, but any challenge to these two, they were just acting like thugs. And it says that they would threaten them and they'd say, I'll take it by force if you don't do it this way. So not only is there kind of a spiritual bullying happening at the temple, but also kind of a physical, physicality to their bullying. Uh, they might have been big guys. We don't know that. Um, but the priests would get a portion. So that's a good thing to know. The fat is an issue in, in this passage. If, and again, these are just reminders because we've been through these passages. The fat was God's portion. When you cook bacon, okay, not bacon, it's like beef bacon, right? 
So if you cook that meat, the part of it that smells good when it cooks is the fat burning on the barbecue. So they're taking things before that aroma goes up to God. The point of cooking the meat was that God got the fat, so to speak. Like scientifically what happens is the fat is just burning up and it, it burns quicker than the meat. But it's also what sends the aroma out to the rest of the community so you know that a barbecue is happening. So when they steal the meat before that can happen, they're stopping that offering from going up from, to God. And that's really like they're stealing God's offering. So this is horrible. The other thing is in Exodus 29, Leviticus 7, Leviticus 10, Deuteronomy 8, the priest's portion was the breast and the shoulder. It's not like they got bad meat. Like they got a good cut. So the fact that they wanted different cuts from the, from the, from the offering is really kind of horrible. Because if you take the breast and the shoulder, they're actually getting light and dark meat. So they got variety in that portion. And the breast especially, that's a big, thick portion of meat that they're getting. So what they're doing here is they're taking that away. They're turning fellowship into just horribleness. Um, and then in verse 17, the sin of the young man is very great. It's not a small thing. In the context of the passage, this is a severe kind of thing. And if we're going to sin, God has, uh, he, he lets that sin play out. This is one of the great confounding theological points. Why does God let this stuff play out? There's a season where he'll let it play out to see if people repent. But when you're going to sin and stop people from getting to the refuge of God, God deals with those people and sometimes deals with them harshly. So um, we get that contrast between these folks and, and we're going to see what happens to them and that God actually de deals with his own temple. Samuel doesn't have to step in and do anything here. God's just managing his temple service. So the contrast in 18 when it says but is a big contrast between these two evil sons that are likely a little older than Samuel. But Samuel ministered before the Lord. So while these two are stealing before the Lord, Samuel ministers before the Lord. The heart of that word minister is to give or to serve other people. So where they're taking Samuel's giving, even as a child wearing a linen ephod. So kids have a role in the with the people of God. Moreover, his mom, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him every year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the early sacrifice. <laughs> and Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. And then they would go up to their home and the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters making a total of six kids for Hannah. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So think of that contrast compared to what we just saw with these other two guys, right? And just the, the balance between them. Um, the custom of the church has gone one way, and then you get this little kid, and just the sweetest image in the world of a mom making him little priest robes, and you can just see like the heart of a mom that sounds like a Minnesota mom, right? She just loves her kid, and she's making little outfits for him. We also get the sense that Elkanah and Hannah stayed involved in Samuel's life. So even if he's serving around the temple, like people would have known Samuel because priests didn't serve at the tabernacle until they were like 30, right? So having this little dude walking around in the priest robes would have been charming to the people that came. So if you're not getting the meat stolen from you from the two thugs, there's this little blessing of a kid running around. And it says he served. And I, I don't think the word of God exaggerates here. He's, run, he's bringing wood up for the fires. He's cleaning ash out of things. He's just a hardworking kid. And you don't believe it till you see it, but kids really do have a personality from a very young age. And Samuel's personality is just, 
I'm just going to help and I'm just going to serve and how can I help and how can I do this? And he was just always that way. So the Lord's watching over all this history. He sees what's going on with the bad kids. He also sees what's going on with Samuel. It says, even as a child. And again, the emphasis here is that it's extraordinary. So this little kid loves serving the Lord and he gets it. And the two sons that are kind of running the place, they don't get it. So everything's being orchestrated by God. Samuel gets what the word says, but not Eli's own kids. So one of the things, the, the idea that he's just being raised in the church, first of all, I've heard people get say like, oh, I feel really bad because I don't have a testimony that has this history of drug addiction and sin. And so when it gets time to testify about how we came to know the Lord, my testimony is kind of blah. But look at Samuel's testimony. It's, it's extraordinary that he just grew up as a godly kid. What a blessing. And the way the Bible celebrates that just as much as Paul's conversion. In fact, there's almost more of a celebration with Samuel here than with Paul, right? Um, I love that. And, and, and I think sometimes with Christian kids that grow up in the church, we have to go out of our way to say, no, 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 that's an awesome testimony. That you just served and you helped sweep up and you helped get the chairs lined up after the service. And just even as a kid, you're just helping all the time. What can I do? How can I help? How can I serve? Bring in cookies to fellowship, things like that, are things that God just adores. He just loves the heart of simple service. And the fact that it makes it into his word that Hannah made him little outfits, God sees that and loves it. This is the heart of our God, too, that those little acts of kindness are special and they're wonderful. My grandma used to knit mittens, and every year we'd come and there'd be this box of mittens for all the grandkids. For us, Michael, the extended family was 18 cousins. So it was a big, she was knitting all year. And what really got, like, by the time Steph and I were dating, some of my cousins would kind of mock and make fun of Grandma because of this. And I remember being so offended by that. Like, I don't care if you don't like the mittens. She knit that for you. It's special. It's a precious thing. Of course, when you go home and you got six pairs of mittens from the years, I mean, I get it. But, man, how precious is Hannah? What a wonderful person. So we got this little mantle. This is how Samuel's identified. What's cool about this little mantle, this little priest kid growing up at the temple, um, he's identified by that all the way along the line. So it becomes iconic of Samuel. He's the guy whose mom made his robes. And he's like that as an adult. If you go forward to 1 Samuel 28, just a few pages to your right, the witch of Endor identifies Samuel as the guy with the robe. So he's known this way all the way up until his adulthood. So that little note they put in this passage, don't miss it. It's like Lincoln's top hat or Churchill's cigar holder, right? These, it's just iconic of Samuel. He's that guy that grew up with his mom making these mantles for him. Verse 20, it says, Eli would bless and the Lord visited Hannah. When Eli, the high priest, blesses somebody, the Lord really honors that, even when Eli doesn't raise his kids the right way. So God's honoring this system that he's set up, and God blesses Hannah again and again and again and again and again with kids, and it fills up the house. So God's not going to be a debtor to any family, and when she gives Samuel over to the service of the temple, God's going to continue. She can't say, oh, God just took my only kid and ripped me off, and he doesn't work that way. When God works with her, he's going to work that way with her. So we got a testimony of faithfulness versus the testimony of sin. And of course, the Samuel story is the one we like. And Samuel grows before the Lord. So in case we miss it, it's right there at the end. And meanwhile, 
the child Samuel grew before the Lord. When it says before the Lord there, it actually in the Hebrew, it's an odd translation. And you may have the word with, and that I think is the better translation. Uh, so in the Hebrew, it, God grows things and, and we don't. Uh, we can grow up physically, but God grows us spiritually. And the connotation of this is Samuel grew with the Lord. And side by side, seeing what was going on. And seeing the sin in the temple is part of what made Samuel so resolute. Like when he cleans the temple out, there's a reason for what he's doing. It's because he grew up seeing all this corruption. So he, he doesn't have room for it. And it's, God's preparing him to have the heart of a prophet that will walk up to a king and say, you're wrong. Right? Because Samuel just doesn't want that kind of sin to start growing. So we see him grow up with the Lord. Um, and uh, what a beautiful sign. So Samuel becomes singularly uh, described in the Bible in that he grew up with God. Uh, even like we see lots of people that grow up for God or loving God or they grow in wisdom and, and favor, which Samuel does too. But this description where he grows up with God is absolutely unique in the Bible. He's a special character. So the prophecy against Eli's household comes in because of the first part of the chapter. Now, Eli was very old. That's no excuse. He should still be running things. And he had heard everything that his sons did to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle. So not only are they stealing, they're, they're forcing themselves on the women that come to the tabernacle to pray. So there's a court of women in front of the tabernacle, and there is at the temple too. And it's women who just want to come and be prayer warriors at the temple. This is where you do it. And you gather with other women, and they would all pray together. And they were the force behind God's kingdom. Um, and they, were, they have this role from all the way back with Miriam and Moses. So the fact that they're sleeping with these women is absolutely horrible. Like, it, it's a sex scandal of the worst kind. And sadly, we see plenty of those, so I don't need to go through examples of how that follows through to the day. But Exodus 38.8 even that far back, referred to the serving, the women who would minister, who assembled at the door of the tabernacle and meeting. They'd sit right outside the tabernacle and just help. And they were helpers. So he says to them, Eli says to his sons, why do you do such things? For I hear of all your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who is going to intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Well, that's a strong passage. Um, there's no excuse for their sin. When it says that, um, yeah, they're just, they're sons of Belial. They're taking their desire to serve themselves and putting it over God's will. So, when Eli says, my sons, in verse 24, know my sons, there is, in the, in the Jewish tradition, he's taking accountability for his kids because he's still calling them his sons. So he's admitting his own guilt when he says that in verse 24. If a father is, has reproved sons and they're still disobedient, the law says they're supposed to take them to the gate and have them killed, Right? So when he calls them his sons, he takes full responsibility. If he's still breathing and alive, he's responsible for his household. So Eli, this is kind of Eli's deal that's happening here. What's Eli's sin? Because he's not actually outdoing it. He hasn't removed them from the priesthood. And he hasn't brought them to the gate to be killed. So in not dealing with the problem, Eli's guilty of the transgression here too. And I don't, like we should, under the law, that's how that works. 
but it says you make the Lord's people transgress. Literally, that's the work of Satan, getting people to transgress against the Lord. So the transgression that they're causing not only is the sex scandal with the women, verse 22, but it's also the idea that the people rightly started to hate coming to the temple because they just get ripped off. Like when you hate going to Disneyland, like you go there because it's cool, but then you pay five, well, you pay $6 for a slushie. That's a whole other story. And then you kind of like, there's a part of you that's like, man, they're just ripping me off. But when you go up to the temple and you just want to offer to the Lord and give to the Lord, and then they're scamming you everywhere you go, literally coming into your camp and taking the meat out of your pot, like that's horrible, especially because you'd mix that pot with the perfect grandma's mix, and then they go screwing up your recipe. So the people rightly hated going to the tabernacle because these people were scam artists. And that's what they were doing. So when you see church greed, sex scandals, sham artists, prideful pastors that are pushing things on people, like it is right for God's people to hate that. Like we should not like seeing that either. So when you see that happening, and frankly, this is the whole book of Judges. Like we saw the nation falling into this garbage all through the book of Judges and we're still in that period and you start to understand why in Judges 17, Micah sets up a shrine in his own house. At least he's not getting ripped off by the priests. But he makes up his own religion. The whole tribe of Dan stops going to the tabernacle and from this perspective, like in Judges, Dan is guilty for not going to the tabernacle. That was their job. But in this passage, you start to realize, oh, we can start to see why they didn't go. Because if this is what they experienced when they got there, this was the custom of the priests. Like you start to realize why Israel's fallen away from God. It's because God's leaders aren't doing their role. And they're not being honest and decent people. So this allows sin to happen and it actually makes more sin happen because they should still be going to the temple. And when they don't go, they're transgressing. Um, so that's where it's the worst crime someone could do is to put stumbling blocks in the way of people getting in to hearing God's word, which is what they did at these big feasts. They read the Bible, they ate food, they read more of the Bible, they ate more food, and we get glimpses of that in Ezra and Nehemiah as to what they would do at these feasts. So we get 500 years being covered in these histories, and we get to see that where they start. So 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles is all called the histories, and we get this kind of accuracy. There's nothing like this in other ancient texts. We're looking at the crimes of the high priests recorded in an ancient document. No other culture does this. The only way this gets recorded is if it's important to tell the truth and you show your own flaws. Like you read the epics of Gilgamesh and you read the, the Bhagavad Gita and you're, every, the leaders are just godlike and the heroes are, you know, have superpowers and they're just, there's nothing that records any history there. But here we see the humanity of both Hannah's care of her son, the humanity of these criminal priests stealing from people, and you see the flaws of ancient um, Israel, not all the superpowers. So it's an amazing set of histories. There's really no comparable ancient document. So as we're reading it, you start to think, well, God's at least going to use it to show us things. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find? Well, God can. In fact, he's helping Samuel get there. So God, and that's Proverbs 20, verse 6. God can take care of his priesthood, and he does. Um, it says at the very end, God desired to kill them. Look it up in the Hebrew. It means 
He desired to kill them. Like, this is not an easy passage for people, especially if the God you paint in your head is a soft, airbrushed, fluffy God. It doesn't, like, these are people in offending God and keeping the people away from his refuge. He's going to fight for those people. This is a shepherd that is normally watching the flock and peaceful, but when the lion shows up, the shepherd goes to action. And that's what we're going to see here is that God won't let this go because they're hurting the sheep, right? So when you have a pastor, sometimes it has to deal with things. It doesn't, it's not always pretty. You do want strong-willed people guarding the flock. And Samuel, being a kid, is not that person yet. But as we watch him grow up, these stories are part of his childhood. And he becomes that guy. But in the meantime, God's going to do that for himself. God desired to kill them. Here's the other thing with killing. That is not like murder with hate. It's a different Hebrew word. To kill is to just execute somebody civically, to end the evil that they're doing. So that's the desire there is not this like God hated them. It's that God can't have them continue to do this in his temple. And I hope that makes sense. But again, that's a good afterwards conversation if we want to dig into the idea that God actually wants to kill some people um, and wants to end what they're doing. So in contrast... Verse 26, and the child Samuel grows in stature in favor with both the Lord and men. As Eli did his best with his sons, probably even just reproved them in what we read, each kid's accountable. So you also have Samuel and he's doing the right thing. So out of these three young men, uh, we have that. There's only two people in the Bible that get the description of verse 26. Who's the second one? Jesus. Thanks. That's why I love you. Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He's the only other character in the Bible that gets that description. So if you think Joshua was an image of what God wants, like Samuel is getting some pretty good titles right at the beginning of his story. So we know Joseph, and, and likely they're talking about like Jesus was just a kid that served and he wanted to be at the temple. We get these stories where he wanted to be hearing the word and he hung out and his parents started going back home and they left him behind because he just wants to be at the temple serving. That's Samuel too. He's just got a heart. And frankly, being a middle school teacher, like I saw kids like this. They're the ones that would stay after class and wipe down the chalkboards and, or whiteboards later on in my career. Um, but they're just, they just wanted to help and be around. And then they'd be late to their next class and you'd be like, you got to actually get to your next class, kid. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But they just love to help and they love to be around and they love to ask questions usually. Um, so it's a good place to note um, as we, before we get into the next verses, in verse 27, it says, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is a good place to stop and remind everybody, all of chapter two includes the prayer of Hannah too. So we got this narrative contrasting the sons between the prayer of Hannah, which is prophetic about Messiah. And at the end of this chapter is a prayer on, or a prophecy around the priesthood. And in between them is this contrast between these sons that we just got done with. That makes sense? So we actually have two major kind of prophecy pieces in this chapter, which is why I'm really glad we broke this up into two different Sundays. Uh, Hannah's prayer, um, and now this nameless man shows up and says, thus saith the Lord in verse 27. So we get these prophecies that are there, and then in chapter 3 we get prophecies that Samuel makes, his first prophecies. So you get Hannah's prophecy, nameless man's prophecy, and Samuel's prophecies in chapters 2 and 3. But here's the prophecy, uh, or at least the first part of it. Thus says the Lord, huh, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father? Oh, this is God talking then. That's the intro there. 
So when it says, did I not reveal, this isn't the some guy saying I, this is God speaking. So did I, God, not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and in Pharaoh's house? Didn't I make myself clear? Did I not choose, verse 28, him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn my incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give the house of your father and all of the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling place, and you honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of the Israel, my people. Somebody should count them up, but myself and my gets used a lot in that passage. This is God's business and God's house. Who is Eli to think he can let this stuff go as high priest? Uh, Notice God goes to Eli. He doesn't go to the sons because as long as Eli's breathing, he's in charge of his household. You know, instead of stealing from the people, they should have done a thing where they all talk about what they like about the person next to them. Be a much more holy household. So I like that the man of God's not named. This is getting to be a long list of people that aren't named in the Old Testament. Just these people that show up and we don't get their name. We don't know who they are. They just appear out of nowhere because God can do that. And it's really not important who the person is. What's important is they're speaking on behalf of God and they're actually right. It gets recorded. Um, So this prophecy gets written down. Eli is the high priest. He would know that that's his responsibility to do that. Um, And we get this person who's just going to speak for God. And when you're speaking for God, your identity is not that important. Um, So thus says the Lord, a formal claim of being a prophet. Hannah didn't make this formal claim. I call Hannah's prayer prophetic, but it's not a prophecy because she never claimed that. She claimed to be speaking for herself, if you look at Hannah's passages. But it is prophetic, even though it's coming from that right place. When you say, thus saith the Lord, in the Old Testament, that signifies, I'm making a prophecy, which means this person puts their life on the line. If this stuff doesn't come true, they should be killed because they're defiling God's word. The house of your father. That father would be Aaron. Remember, God picked Aaron. And all the priestly duties are listed. They're supposed to serve the Lord, offer to the Lord, give incense or an image of prayer before the Lord. And an ephod is really an image of beauty. like this. And we didn't really get a lot of that in the Old Testament, but the idea that they're supposed to care for how the place looks, that that matters to some degree. In other words, like pick some nice paint colors and keep the place up. But wearing that ephod is to represent the beauty of God. And then all the other offerings, and then the last one is to help others serve God. You see that kind of list of priestly duties? That list of duties, when we're called a holy priesthood in the New Testament, that list of duties remains. Serve the Lord, offerings and worship, incense and prayer, make the place look good, all the other offerings, and help other people serve God too. And serving the Lord is to tell his word, and we see that in other passages. Verse 29, it says, why do you kick at my sacrifice? Literally, to kick there is to walk over or trample something. God's trying to grow crops, and they're walking all over the crops. So instead of just rebuking the sons, he goes straight to Eli. And Eli should have them removed and take action on this. He doesn't. He leaves them in place. So a godly home then is is driven by what serves God in that we take action when we see sin. Honestly, if somebody came up and pointed out to me the word of the Lord and said where I'm wrong in something, there's two ways to react to that. You can get bitter and hard-hearted and say, well, this is the decision I've made and this is how I'm going to do it. Or you can go back to the word yourself 
check yourself on it, and if you should change, you should take action on the change. So when it comes to godly people, they take action when they know they're wrong. Saints don't wait. Like, it's something we just do. So it, we don't let the kids rule the home, which is what's happening to Eli here. He's got two sinful kids, and they're running the place. Uh, in the same way, godly people don't let other things in life rule instead of God. We don't let our jobs rule us. We don't let soccer practice rule us. Like, we rule, or we let God rule in our lives, period. Um, so where we can serve, we look for how to serve, who we can serve. We should look more like Samuel than the kids. But verse 30, therefore the Lord of the God of Israel says, so we get a second part to the prophecy. Because of the sin, here's what's going to happen. I, God, said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. That's a promise to Aaron in Exodus 29.9. Actually, there's other passages too. But the perpetuation of the priesthood was told to Aaron would happen for eternity. So Aaron's line will be in the priesthood for all eternity. That's the promise God made. I want to follow through with this because we're about to eliminate a family from that line. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm, your strength, and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. So there might still be priests, but they're not going to be sons of Eli. And we're going to end the line of Eli. Um, remember, not all of Aaron's, even Aaron's children, he had Nadab and Abihu that were doing strange smoke before the altar. Remember this? And he killed them straight up. So that's what's happening here too. Aaron made a pro God made a promise to Aaron that is going to be held true, but there's no guarantee that the eldest son will carry forward that promise. Thus, we have the line of Jesus that looks the same when it comes to the kingship. God doesn't always pick the eldest son. And in Aaron's case alone, two of the sons got killed and the other two sons followed, went forward. So in Numbers 20, 28, when Aaron took off the ephod, he put it onto Eleazar, his third son. And the other two sons were cut off. Um, so we have that. And then the other one of his sons was in Numbers 25, 13, Phineas, then takes the robes from Eleazar. Phineas is the guy that, remember, that stopped the plague because he had two people having sex in front of the tabernacle and he just killed them. And he was the next high priest. So the line went from Aaron to Eleazar to Phineas. And Eli's line then is, um, Eli's in the line of Aaron's fourth son, not that Eleazar line, but the Ithamar line. So then one question is, how did Eli's line take over the high priesthood? And how did that get there? This is a question not all of you care about, and I understand that. But it is something that's kind of like, okay, how does that line follow? Um, and we have this kind of situation where we, like, how does this kind of go? In Numbers 3, verse 4, Eli, or, uh, Eleazar and Ithamar take over the priesthood together. And if you read that passage, if you, if you do want to flip back there, it, it's just a subtle thing, and I didn't cover it when we covered the chapter, but they both take over the priesthood. And they got given different responsibilities. So you're going to oversee these priests that do these duties, and you're going to oversee these priests that do these duties. Well, somewhere along the line, Eleazar's family and their duties, and Ithamar's family and their duties, the Ithamar family became the high priest and started doing more. They're both in the line of Aaron, and that works. Um, but it says there won't be an old man in your house. That's an image of wisdom. To have old men in your house is good. You can tell all the old men we know that it's nice we have them around. Because what old men bring is sober-mindedness. 
younger people, and I still consider myself younger, sometimes we make rash decisions. But older men will be like, relax, let's think this through, and their role was wisdom. So to have a whole family without old men in it means you're going to have a family that makes some bad decisions. That's exactly what happens to this family. Verse 32, and, okay, there's more consequences, you will see an enemy in my dwelling pace, despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever, says it twice. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Whoa, when's that going to happen? The idea then gets repeated. Aaron's line is promised the priesthood, but Eli's part of that line is going to be gone. Um, so the enemy in the dwelling place, he's referring to Eli's sons and his, that family, and this line isn't going to be blessed. Here's the rest of the, the prophecy. Now this shall be a sign to you that it will come to your, that will come upon your two sons. Okay, this is how prophecies work in the Old Testament. You give a prophecy and when God says something, it's not just true today. When God's word is spoken, God is truth. So he's not just predicting the future. He's stated a truth that exists now, in the future, and for all of eternity because God's word instantly becomes true. He spoke and the earth was created. So when he speaks, this becomes eternally true, not just a quick little prophetic, you know, here's your future teller, what's going to happen tomorrow. So when he speaks, it happens eternally. And we'll unpack this and we'll pick up upon this. But part of what 34 is doing is saying, this will be a sign to you that will come upon with your two sons. Something's going to happen within your lifetime where you know that this prophecy is going to be true for all of eternity. So just before you die, you're going to know this is how it works. Right? So... Um, this shall be a sign upon you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. This is not Phinehas the Valiant from earlier. This is, he was named after that Phinehas. Not, Phinehas the Not-So-Valiant. In one day there shall, they shall die, both of them. So both of his sons are going to die in the same day and he's going to see it. And that's going to be the sign that he knows that his line is cut off. All right. Then, verse 35, this is what we need to know because that is going to verify this. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall walk before my anointed forever. Literally the word Messiah. Shall walk before my Messiah forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who's left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please, Put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Again, the bread is often symbolized of the word of God. I just want to be there to hear the word. Can I just please come to Bible study? So God, he doesn't speak like humans. When he speaks, it's reality. So it's a different kind of just, he's not just a soothsayer, right? He's speaking something that's just going to be there. So there's the immediate fulfillment of verse 34. Then there's the coming soon. Then there's the rest of the story. If, if I'm dating myself, did anybody listen to the radio and remember the rest of the story? Yes. What was the name of that radio guy? Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey. He's no longer with us. Right. Bless his heart. He's with the king, I'm sure. Fulfillment usually happens within a generation, and then it happens again and again. So the first happening endorses the rest of it. So... This happens, and it's going to happen, and it will happen. Uh, so we have a prophecy here concerning the priesthood of God and what the priesthood is going to look like. And 
it's the first of these prophecies, so it's kind of vague because God gets more and more specific as we go through the Old Testament until pretty much like Micah's just saying, yeah, and you know, the siles show up and he'll do this and he'll have this for breakfast. Um, it gets really specific as we go on. But prophetic speech, then there's different ways to read it. So I'm going to go through each of those three ways, then I'm going to talk us through the priesthood. So I warned you in the text, like, we got the chapter tonight, but we also got this really cool stuff on the priesthood. So the immediately, God's cleaning house. He says, both of your kids will die. This gets fulfilled. That's going to be a sign of what's going on, that your legacy is not going to be part of the plan anymore. Um, but a faithful priest is mentioned. That's going to immediately be Samuel will step up and be that faithful priest. So he'll serve in that role as judge, and he'll also serve at the temple. And then he's also going to be our first prophet that speaks to the kings and actually anoints the kings. And so God's predicting that this is going to happen before it happens, making it prophetic. And there will be then from here moving forward, we're going to see that there's a high priest at the tabernacle and then the temple, but there's also prophets that come up. The original plan with Aaron is that when God spoke, he'd speak through the high priest. Eli's not doing his job, so the Lord's telling him, I'm not going to speak through you anymore. So for the rest of, from here forward in the Old Testament, through the era of kings, the kings didn't have the high priest knocking on their door. They had a prophet that God would raise up that would come knock on their door. So the temple would keep doing their thing, but we get very little record of the temple because of this right here. I'm going to raise up people that will speak on my behalf. You as a high priesthood are not going to do that anymore. So he takes away a major part of that original plan and God adjusts a little bit. So 1 Samuel 4 this comes true. Eli, the two sons die on the same day, and Eli dies the same day. So <clears throat> if you want to go forward, and we'll, we'll get there here in a couple weeks, but in 1 Samuel 4, this all gets fulfilled. So we're going to talk about it there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here. Um, but Samuel gets to be the last judge and the first prophet. Now the coming soon part of this prophecy. We have to go all the way forward to 1 Samuel 22. And if you, if you do want to flip there, you can. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 19, you can glimpse at the passage um, where all of the descendants of Eli, Saul gets suspicious of them, and he slaughters them all, or as many as he can find, because some of them get away. So Eli's line continues, there's only one that escapes. I said some of them, I should have said one of them escapes, the slaughter of Saul. That's Abiathar. Years later, Abiathar who still sits in that role because he does, he's a descendant of Eli and the, the humans have kept that tradition. Eli sides with, uh, against David with Adonijah, David's son. This puts him on bad terms with the king because he picks the wrong side. Um, and then I'm going to actually read this part from 1 Kings. And, and again, this is all like, okay, what happens to Eli's line? The answer is it goes a couple more generations and then this happens. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots, horsemen, and 50 men to run before him. He had people that announced his coming. And his father had not rebuked him at any time, saying, why have you done this? Which is what we just read with Eli talking to his sons, right? So the kingship comes under the same sin. And why have you not done this? And he was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom, so he's a, he's a good-looking man. And then he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. That's what we're tracking right now. And they followed, and they helped Adonijah. So the priesthood went with David's son to rebel against the king. This is a bad move. 
because God was with David. And then verse 8, this is where this gets trans transferred. But Zadok the priest, not in Eli's line at all, but under, this, under the trail of Eleazar, right? So one, there's two families in the priesthood. Benaniah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Re, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. So when this all plays out, Zadok is the, is the family of priests that sided with David. So the temple, or the tabernacle, well at this point the temple, no it's still tabernacle under David, they split and there's two groups of priests. So God eventually sides with David, David wins. Um, so when they carry the ark up to, the, to Jerusalem under David, it's Zadok that's in charge of that. He doesn't call on Abiathar. And they care for it, and they watch after the ark, but, and they're still in Aaron's line. So God keeps his promise to Aaron, but he also keeps his curse to Eli at the same time. Then what happens next is when Solomon, the son of David, is going to take over the kingship, they need a priest to come and do that anointing. If you look in 1 Kings 1.44, the priest that David calls, Zadok. So Eli's getting pushed out of the priesthood. And to fully replace Eli's line in the time of Solomon, 1 Kings 2.35, I'll read this one. So Solomon formally removes Abiathar from the priest of being the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh, what we just got done reading. That the king put Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, in the place over the army, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. So in the time of David, so it was true immediately, both sons died. Coming soon, you're going to get disposed within Abiathar. It's going to formally be removed from the priesthood. They're not even allowed at the temple anymore because they're just trouble. They're traitors, right? So you get the traitors out of the rulership. It's one of the things David told Solomon. When you take over, here's the people you need to get rid of. And why David didn't get rid of them, I don't know. But Solomon does. He, in wisdom, gets rid of these people, and he removes them from their role. So Zadok's son, Ahimaaz, just as a side note, is noted in 2 Samuel 18 as being a good man, quote-unquote. He's a good man. So Zadok and his son are decent people. And Abiathar and the line of Eli, these guys are scumbags. So the line of Zadok is going to stay in place for the high priesthood all the way to Jesus' time. This is just amazing stuff. All of this gets fulfilled moving forward under, under the priesthood. So it all follows through, but then here's the rest of the story. Read really carefully back in our passage. It says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. In the Hebrew, I just want to read this so you can hear the language. Kum ani kum kohen aman kohen. Hear the repetition there? but I don't see the repetition in the English. What happened in my translation? Literally, there's a shifting here that's happening. In, in a literal translation to the English is, raise me, raise priest, faithful priest. I'm going to raise myself as a faithful priest. Literally translated from the Hebrew. I will raise myself up as a faithful priest. Right here, all the way back in the beginning of the priesthood under Samuel, or under Eli. And he tells Eli what he's going to do. So that, that creates all sorts of problems for us. The shifting here in this verse, in our passage, shifts to the singular. He's not talking about a line of priests or a family of priests. He's literally talking about a singular faithful priest in verse 35. Verse 36, to him, singular. 
There will be a person I raise up that will reign forever. Do you see the passage? The, but this isn't, it's not messianic because we're not talking about an anointed king. We're talking about God's chosen high priest. And you've heard me say this a lot. Jesus is both king and high priest. The king's a lot easier to track in the Bible, but this priest stuff is awesome. Like it is really cool how this lands on Jesus too. So God promises to raise up a new mouthpiece to intercede for the people. Jesus becomes our intercessor. And it's important to Christians that we know how this works under the law. Like he is our high priest. He is our intercessor. He's what stands between us and judgment. So there's a new priesthood that's going to come soon uh, under Zadok, but there's a new permanent high priest, God himself, that's the rest of the story, the eternal story of this prophecy. See how prophecy works? Isn't this awesome? Okay, maybe I'm getting too excited, but it says, raise up. There's a figurative and immediate coming soon. Immediately, he's raising up Samuel. Coming soon, he raises up Zadok and his good son. For eternity, he raises up Jesus. But it's true when God says it. It's eternally true. He's going to raise up his priests and the people that speak for him. People aren't going to speak for him if he doesn't make that happen. Right? Which is really interesting when you get the book of Acts. I hate to get too off script. In the book of Acts, we're called a holy priesthood for God when we become servants of Jesus Christ. In other words, this applies to each person in this room. That when you speak and you know what the Bible says and you tell that to people, you are speaking on behalf of God as a holy priest. Like, take that seriously. That's not a small thing when we do that. All right, so it says that this person shall do according to what's in my heart and my mind. So this person will follow my will. And that's what defines a priest, not Eli's kids. They're doing their three-pronged meat-hooking stuff. Um, So here's the deal. Jesus is this person, and Zadok's this person. I want to look at Zadok more carefully, because this is interesting. If I go to Ezekiel, and I'll just read this one for you. Ezekiel 44, verse 15. But the priests, the Levites... The sons of Zadok, who kept my charge and my sanctuary, when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. See how the issues here was about stealing the fat? God wants his barbecue. He wants that aroma to go up to him in offering. He wants the people of God to smell the barbecue, and the olfactory attraction to the temple should be a positive one. Shouldn't be going up to the temple out of duty and being all begrudging about it. Like going to church should be a joy, right? And so when you have stuff going on that makes that hard, when Ezekiel's talking, he's talking about the end of days. That passage I just read, the sons of Zadok sit before the Lord forever, eternally, not the sons of Eli. Like this is a huge curse that came on Eli's family. The opportunity Eli and his sons had was that their line and them themselves would be serving the king directly in the millennial age. That when the Lord returns and there's a new kingdom, the sons of Zadok, we get to go meet them because they'll still be serving for all eternity. Like what an honor, what a beautiful thing. Here's the other thing, Ezekiel 48, 11, It shall be for all eternity for the priests of the sons of Zadok who are sanctified, who have kept my charge and did not go astray when, when the children of Israel went astray, pretty much talking about Eli and his family, the people that went astray, as the Levites went astray. (laughs) So as they did it, the sons of Zadok didn't. 
Zadok and his good son, they kept the word of God. And God honors the people that do that. So the kingdom age servants of the throne are actually going to be Zadok for all eternity, prophesied way back here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. All right? Jesus lives out all his days, and there will be people that are there. They shall walk in our prophecy. They shall walk before my anointed forever. They're going to walk in the face of the Messiah all day long. Right? So the sons of Zadok are predicted here. God is, we now have the phrase, my anointed. The first time we saw that was back in Hannah's prayer at the beginning of the chapter. So God's using throughout the Bible phrases that we see in chapter 2. And this is going to be how God refers to this stuff from here on out. I just love that pieces are falling into place as we progress through the Old Testament. It's just awesome. My anointed fought forever then, literally translated in the Hebrew as Messiah, 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 all day. Like, that, this is what this is going to look like. So from David's reign to the end of Judah is, is called the days of kings. And the word here is yom. It's the same term that, that's used in Genesis when there was a day where God did creation, right? Same kind of term here, my anointed all day, every day there is. Or it could just be the days of the kings. It could be the rest of the story that it's going to be there. Verse 36 says, will come and bow down. Okay, stop on that. Do priests accept worship for themselves? No. In fact, that's horrible and evil, but God's saying in this prophecy, there will be an eternal priest that, the, that, that people will come and bow down to this person. So to bow down means they have to be God. So it's absolutely predicting a high priest that will be God, not a king, a high priest. So this idea that God's eventually going to unite the kingship and the priesthood, this is the very first time in the Bible we see that link being made. So when you bow down to priests, you, you bow down to kings and you bow down to your Lord and king. But in this particular case, they're bowing down to priests. So humans like Eli and his line are still going to bow down before this priest and they're, they're going to be begging for the bread is the image we get. So I want to look more carefully of this in regard to the priesthood. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is of the line of Judah. Who are the priests and what line are they in? Levi, how do you make that come together? Like, how do you get a person from the line of Judah to be a high priest forever? And A, God can just do it if he wants to. I, like, at some level, I don't have a problem with that. But God's already said that the high priests will serve. And in this prophecy, it says they'll serve too. But they're coming with requests. They're not coming to take from people. They're coming to ask for the bread from this high priest, this king that's going to be in place. And, and so if you're looking at that, it should make you wonder, okay, how does a non-Levite become an eternal high priest? How does that work? To do that, there's a couple transitions that happen throughout the scriptures. Second Samuel 18, if you want to flip forward to that. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief rulers. The word there is Kohen or priests. So we see in 2 Samuel 8 that under David's kingship, there were Levites that were in charge of the temple, but David put his own sons in the temple as priests too. There's nothing in the law that says people who aren't Levites can't serve as priests. Nothing. So, and when they use the word Kohen or priests, David institutes a priesthood at the temple under his reign that's not Levites, but they serve, and we can see that in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 18. So 
there's instituted a line of priests serving at the temple that are non-Levites. And this is the same thing with the Nazarite vow, right? Anybody from the other 11 tribes can become a Nazarite and serve at the temple. So there's no law that says you can't serve at the temple, and there's no law that says you can't be a high priest. The law says the Levites are obligated to be priests. And at age 30, they'll go serve at the temple, right? So Zadok is the high priest of the line of David, but under Zadok are these other priests of the line of Judah, under David. So it's in the law that they're going to be there and serve, but the law also allows for other people to come in too. So the especially a whole family line. When David takes a family line, they're appointed by the anointed. And they come into the temple and they're just put there in place by the one God's put in place as a king. Starting to bring together the lines a little bit, right? But we don't know that Jesus is of that descendancy. In fact, he's not. He's descendant of the line of kings, if you got to go through Solomon. So of David, a Psalm, a, a, a Psalm 110 says, the Lord will rule, God affirming David's priests, this new line gets mentioned. Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. There will be a time in the future where the people of God are volunteers. We come because we just volunteer to do it. The Levites are not volunteers. They're obligated to be there. They're deigned to be there. So in Psalm 110, we see this reference to these volunteers in the beauties of holiness From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, who's Melchizedek? Then you got to unpack the Melchizedek stuff. Are you all following me through this so far? He's like, I don't know. The question is now, who's Melchizedek? Because if David institutes this other line of priests that are Judah, they're not of the line of Levi, but they're serving at the temple. And then in the, in the psalm, we prophetically hear there's going to be this priest that rules forever, but they're not of the line of the Levites. They're of the order of Melchizedek. So like Melchizedek, he's not a Levite. In fact, Melchizedek was the priest with Abraham, right? Yes. Levi hasn't even been born yet. Levi's a sparkle in his papa's eye at this point, right? And so is Judah. Those two haven't even been around, but Melchizedek was serving the Lord God Almighty as a priest before there were any tribes at all. Of that kind of nature, we're going to get a new high priest. So in Genesis 14, 18 is when he's talking to Abraham. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, uh, Jerusalem, brought out the bread and the wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. That's the order we're talking about, this pre-Levite thing that happened. So God's going to do something in the priesthood. From the sideline, um, God's going to elevate the high priesthood, but he's not going to elevate Levi, but Levi is going to continue to serve as priest forever and all eternity, keeping both promises. Don't miss that the people should be volunteers. There's going to be a priesthood that comes into place and all of them are simply volunteering to serve the God, serve the Lord God Almighty. That's us, folks. That's, we're the church. We happen to be volunteers. Um, we are not necessarily of the line of Judah and we're not of the line of Levi either. But at least I don't know that we are. And Melchizedek then serves before the Levites and before Levi's even born. I already said that. So after the captivity, Zechariah the prophet talks about what's going to happen. So the priesthood goes from Zadok and stays as a continual line all the way into captivity. And coming back out of captivity, the Jews came back to Jerusalem. 
And so in Zechariah 6, turning right in your Bibles, verse 12, it says this, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, Nazar, or a Nazarite, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Not only will there be a new priesthood, there's going to be a new kind of temple that is branched out all over the place, the church. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So again, combining the priesthood with the kingship. And he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So you see how things get clearer as we go through the Old Testament? Like it, Now God's just saying it. He's going to be both a priest and he's going to have a throne. He'll be a king. So uniting the two completely, he tells that to the Israelites after they come back from captivity. And he kind of tells them the, the branch, which is, you know, who's this guy? Um, what's interesting here is, you know, if you look at this at some level, it says the Lord of hosts saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out. He kind of tells us the of Nazarite or av of Nazareth part of Jesus' name. So we get this first indication of actually what the name of the person is. And if you, well, okay, here's the other thing. This is one of the things Trevor pointed out to me. Who's talking here? And he's like, you got to go back and look at that. Behold the man whose name is the branch, right? From his place he shall branch out. Who's going to branch out? If you go back, it says, the Lord of hosts saying. So it's literally Yeshua will be there. So if you look at the structure of the sentence, it's the first time we really get the name Yeshua the branch or Yeshua Jesus the, of Nazareth, right? And so at some level, it's actually, you get further on in prophecy, it gets really clear. So the first high priest is actually named Yeshua. <laughs> this is in Zechariah 6.8. The first one that they name after the captivity is actually his name is Yeshua. So, you, it gets, so it's true then, and it's going to be true for all eternity. So the first time a priest is given a crown and unites these two things, so you got immediately prophecy, coming soon prophecy, rest of the story prophecy. And Jesus becomes that inheritor of everything. So this was something that the Jews had to get their head around with Jesus. They were really... Like, how does this work? How come the high priest at the temple, who's the high priest on, when Jesus is there? Anybody remember his name? Caiaphas, right. Line of Zadok, Caiaphas. Jesus, not of the line of Zadok, is going to take over the high priesthood. He's going to dispose Caiaphas in doing this. So they had to get their head around this, and they talk about this when we go to the New Testament. They really unpack this in the book of Hebrews. Like, this is how it all works. Now, if you don't know everything we just went through, this is a confusing passage in Hebrews. But I'm hoping we read this, and you are like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what they were unpacking as a group of new believers. How did Jesus become the high priest? Because he is the high priest. He did it in power and in truth. He's the high priest. Um, so how did that happen? Because he's of the line of David, he's a legitimate heir to the kingship, but, and he's from the line of Judah, but he's not of the line of Levi, and he's not Caiaphas's son. So they had to work this out, and this is, they went back to the prophecies I was just talking about. Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to read a bigger passage here, so if you are a quick flipper, you may want to jump here. This is really, and I'll kind of close on this. 
with a few thoughts afterwards. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, it was the Levitical priesthood is good. It gave us the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise to the order of Melchizedek? See, they're unpacking all this. And not be called according to the order of Aaron. He's a Melchizedek priest. He's not an Aaronic priest. For the priesthood changed. Of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. Jesus is from Judah. Of which the tribe of Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet it's far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priesthood, a new priesthood who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but according to the power of endless life. He resurrected from the dead. He's exhibited his speaking for godness because he rose from the dead. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting Psalm 110, which we just read. Like this was prophesied that there would be a a forever priesthood that would come after the Levitical priesthood. For, for on one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The Levitical priesthood is dead. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So we're going to serve the high priest Jesus, who will sit forever, eternally, as there's no descendant of Jesus that we follow. He's our high priest. We're going to serve him forever. Okay, so for starters, like... This really ev- elevates, like, Christianity is not a light thing. At some level, we become priests under our high priest of Jesus Christ. We are his agents on earth to proclaim his word. It's not a light thing. It's not, I'm just going to be buddies with Jesus and say prayers at night every night. There's a responsibility that comes with the priesthood to share and to care for people, to minister to God's people, to shepherd God's people. And that responsibility comes through Jesus Christ, our high priest. But there's still a need for a priesthood. The harvest is plenty, but the harvesters are few because he's looking for volunteers to step into this role. So when you count the cost of Christianity, that should be weighed in as you make decisions for salvation. Um, back in our passage in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, I will raise up from I will raise up myself a faithful priest. Jesus comes and shows up, and that's what they're unpacking in Hebrews. God, Jesus is actually our high priest and he's our king. Legit, we bow down to Jesus and that's okay. He doesn't refuse the worship because he's actually God and it's in truth. It says that there will be a bowing down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread. So we will forevermore go to Jesus and ask him for our daily bread. And we even ask him for our resources. Lord, provide for my family. And as a priesthood, our role for all of eternity is to simply go to the high priest to ask for everything, even the little stuff like just a piece of silver or a piece of bread. And in the prophecy to Eli, it sounds like a negative thing, but when you see the plan of God revealed in Jesus Christ, this is an amazing thing. We get to go directly to God and ask him for things like bread. And so we say, give us this day our daily bread forever for all of eternity. That's the plan which is prophesied back in 
1 Samuel 2. Can you see why I was so excited tonight? Like, it all is here, and it's legal. Like, it's, it's been predicted since the beginning, right? And it is not a, it's not just that God's winging it through history. He's got a plan, and he's moving it forward. So we don't have Levites in charge anymore, in part because they were thieves, right? And they ripped people off. We do have people in leadership in the church that act just like Eli's sons. No question about it. And it breaks our heart when that happens. It breaks our heart to see people of God. I was doing all this research on how many priests fall from glory throughout the history of just the last 30 years. It's insane. And I, did, and I was just like, I don't want to talk about any of this. I'll just mention that I did the research. It's a depressing study of how many people of God fall. And it's a, it's a pattern that is indicative of a sick church when the priests are sick and it's part of the culture. And this is what was happening with Eli's son. It was the culture, the custom, that they would be evil people. And it took God just raising up a new person in Samuel saying, I'm just not going to be that person. And if anything, if I can admonish at the end of the teaching night, be more like Samuel. Just set yourself apart for God and say, I'm not going to be one of those people that uses my holiness to lord over other people. I'm going to use my holiness to serve other people and come under them and elevate them up and be a blessing to the people in my life, not a curse, right? And yet we have a church today that would much rather tell people what to do than help people solve problems. And it breaks my heart, and it should break all of our hearts to see that happening in our church. But we also see that there's this fallen nature. So last week we talked a little about about the history of all of it. So before I read verse 36, because when I read that verse, we're kind of done. Just a thought, we're running out of excuses in human history, right? And what we see with the failing of the priesthood in our chapter tonight is that that was just one more instance. It, initially, it was like, if only we had a covenant with God and God gave us Abraham. If only we had a leader that could intercede for us and God gave us Moses. If only we had somebody to speak for us and he gave us Moses and Aaron. If only we had it down in writing. If you could just write your law, God, then we could follow it. And then he gave us the law. But that didn't work because then we started saying, okay, well, if only we had judges to help us remember the law because we forget it all the time. So he gave us judges, and that didn't work. If only we had priests that could be holy, and maybe we could live with priests telling us how to carry out the law. Well, he gave us priests, and they went and started using meat hooks or little tridents. If only we had kings is going to be the next step. If only a king ruled over us, and if we had a holy king, he would make edicts, and we'd all just follow the edicts. Well, that doesn't work. He gives them David, and that line fails. So then if only we had prophets that could just, because kings fail, so if only prophets could come in and speak for God and tell us what to do. Well, they start killing the prophets. That doesn't work. If only we had God himself show up on earth and tell us how to live. If that could happen, maybe we could follow God. He gives us Jesus. He gives us himself. Gives us that high priesthood. And, okay, okay, Jesus resurrected, went back. If only we had the Holy Spirit, so we didn't have to, like, we just had the Holy Spirit telling us directly from God how to do it. God, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And then then the church turns into the persecutors instead of the shepherds, right? And we see in our era like this falling away of things. If only we had democracy where everybody could practice their religion because the church got persecuted. So if only the church could just act without being oppressed by a government. Wouldn't that be awesome? And then we had this era of democracy 
which is, by the way, it's failing. But that's not new, and we should not be depressed or anxious about that. If only Jesus would come back and reign himself in person. Prophecy says that's going to happen. So you can see where we're at in human history. It's all been predicted. But man, if it was just Jesus was here, so God himself was our direct king, that's called the millennium. In the Bible, there's a thousand-year period God's going to reign. Guess what happens at the end of the thousand years? There's people that rebel against God. Even though he's the leader, like he's the one we watch on TV at night. Jesus is just talking to us. You know, Biden from his uh, um, bunker turns into Jesus from the throne in Jerusalem, ruling the world for a thousand years. But people are still going to, there's always going to be rebellion because there's always going to be humans that think their will is better than God's will. The problem isn't who rules us. The problem is if we serve a ruler that's in heaven on high. It's a completely individual decision. It always has been. So I, I say this because th we've had this history of the world thing happen, and it's, we know we've documented the history. We know the prophecies of the future, and it's just the same cycle over and over again. And in every generation, God asks the same thing of us. Set yourself apart and choose this day who you will serve. And serve the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. The, it's really simple commands minister be a holy priesthood be a volunteer priest or don't and if you don't don't be too upset when god doesn't you know bring you into his kingdom at the end of it he'll give you what you want either way i know i'm preaching to the choir we'll wrap up and it shall come to pass that everyone who's left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a morsel of bread and they'll say please put me in one of the priestly positions that i may eat a piece of bread can I please be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what we get. The prophecy is fulfilled in the church. It's exactly what we get. And can I just get a piece of bread? Like, I just want to get the word every week. That's all I need. I don't need fluffy chairs. Well, I kind of do. But, I, you know, if I don't have fluffy chairs, I just want the word of God. That's what's important to me. I just want a piece of bread every week. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give that to you. He gives exactly what we ask for. So here's a piece of bread out of the book of Hebrews, and then I'll, this will be the last thing tonight. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it's impossible to please him, God, Jesus, our high priest. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, What a joy to read your word and have it sink in, Lord, that you have planned everything from the beginning, that you know all things, you have a plan, and anyone who seeks you can find you. And Lord, that's the goal, is that the, the road to the city of refuge is clear of stumbling blocks, that to get to the Lord God Almighty, there's nothing that gets in the way. Tonight, Lord, we read a chapter where your chosen high priests get in the way of people loving the temple and the experience at church. Lord, help us to clear the road. Help us to wisely open the doors for everyone we know. Lord, we're not here to accuse people. We're here to invite people. Lord, we're not here to correct people. We know you will do that in your Holy Spirit. You rule directly as a high priest for all of us. We're not here to be accusers, Lord, but we are here to lovingly come before your throne ourselves. And as 
a holy priesthood, that responsibility lays on us and, 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 and it's a, a mantle, an ephod that we put on. So Lord, help us to honor you, to elevate you, to, to glorify your name. And Lord, you give us names to use. We don't even have to think them up. Your most high, wonderful counselor, high priest, king forever, anointed one, Messiah, prince of peace. Lord, we just want to lift you up and be your king and your servants. So we ask you for a piece of bread. Lord, we ask you for our daily bread and, and, and feed us with your word. We ask you for our resources and our time. Lord, help us to not worry about money because uh, you've provided for us. Lord, and we are grateful with what you've provided and we're thankful for it. Lord, help us to give to you what's yours, which is our heart and our life. And if we're breathing right now, you've put that breath in us. So help us to give that breath back to you to speak words of life to everyone we meet this week to look for opportunities to encourage, edify, uh, and boldly proclaim you as the way, the truth, and the life to the people that we meet and know. And Lord, we just pray for your guardianship and protection. We pray for health issues, especially in my home. Lord, just be with us in those things. And Lord, as we gather and pray in your name, just bless this time. Help this fellowship to be sweet and lovely, Lord, and just bless the people that have taken their, their New Year's weekend to be here at a Bible study and just bless that gift as an act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.